I think more the passion for it's gone. Passion for it's gone because yeah, the thing that I've been writing about is a variation on the thing that effectively beat me up and kept me in bed for two weeks. And I hate not moving around. I hate inactivity. I hate not doing stuff. And I couldn't even read when I had this because it, everything was spinning. I think I see the whole thing very visually when I'm writing it, and I like to try to describe it very visually. Uh, I think I've said this probably to Phil before, but, but my, my entire sort of intention is to, write a, is to write a film or project a film into someone's head. I want them to be able to read it, to get completely lost in what they're reading, but I really want them to be able to see it. The, the best thing for me is when somebody tells me that they've cast my book. So my experience within the industry was absolutely 100% positive. I'm completely aware of what you're talking about. I mean, there is horrible snobbery, mm. but I've, I, I've never put myself in a position to experience it from other writers because I've only ever been around the writers who are also at the end of the snobbery. Uh, <laughs> however, I have experienced it from barristers. Welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And this is Phil Williams. And we are going to shout out First of all, to a part of the world where we didn't think we'd be listened, and on today's episode we have two listeners in Hungary. Nice. Yeah. Hello, Hungary. Hi, Andrew. I've uh, never been, know very little about. Yeah, no, I haven't either, and I don't know that much about it either. Well, that was insightful. Yeah, but what I do like is that there are two people subscribing to bestsellers in Hungary. Ah, so, so it can't be a mistake. No. And do you think no, not... that one person told the other one? <laughs> well, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, that, that's, I wonder <laughs> I wonder if it's referral or not. Anyway, what I want to do is try and slowly grow our listenership and, and you know, within realms. Mm. So um, next time I click on, I want Hungry to say four. So I want those two people to have told one person each. All right, no pressure. Why are you putting yeah, so... all this pressure on Hungary all of a sudden? <laughs> Just, you know. Just just for just to see whether we can get away with that kind of thing, just okay. to see whether it works. And next time you mention it, I want you to know something about the country. Fine, fine, all right, I'll do that. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Today's episode uh, is with somebody that I hadn't read before, but I think you know pretty well. Uh, Tony Kent, who is a barrister turned writer of thrillers, and his his books just really fun. I really liked mm. it. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, he's got a really good knack at writing pace and, as you say, fun and high octane. And um, I think he's represented some interesting, with air commas, going people. And I think that probably informs some of the fiction. Yeah, it does. And we should say this was actually one of the, if not the first interview that we did way back in the mists of March I think the very end of March um, and when we first spoke to Tony he was actually he was he was well but he was still recovering because he had not been that great himself well look we'll get to power play in a moment which is your brand new thread up first of all I wanted to ask you about your health because the, the reason why you're, you would normally be launching a book with loads of fireworks, wouldn't you? And obviously all that's done now because of the, the isolation we're all going through. But you've had it. You've had COVID-19. Yes, I, I seem to get it really early. Um, I, I'm fairly sure I wasn't the first in the country, but I was certainly in the first little, uh, little batch. So two weeks ago, yeah, we're recording this on the 26th of March. 
So uh, two weeks ago, Tuesday, just over, just over two weeks ago, I woke up completely unable to breathe, completely unable to breathe properly. I, uh, I couldn't take a deep breath at all. It felt like somebody was stabbing me in the chest. And as I tried to sort of breathe in more deeply, it felt like that stabbing was going down into my abdomen. It was a horrible, horrible feeling. Also, physically, I felt like somebody had run me over. I'd, I'd been in a car wreck. I was dizzy. I had an enormously high temperature. Uh, we called 111 um, because of the, the chest pains. They thought it might be something even more immediate and sent out an ambulance. I had all the tests you could have from the uh, paramedics and ultimately they said, well, we can't test you for this, but it seems to us like you've got uh, coronavirus, as, as we were referring to it at that point. So I went and had the test and, and I did. And yeah, that's, uh, that's what I had. So, so when you say you went and had the test, how easy was that to do? Uh, I had to insist on it. Uh, because right. I'd been advised that there was no test, that, that just you, unless you're hospitalised, you can't have the test. But I'd had quite a lot of meetings, and so there were quite a lot of very worried people. And ultimately, it wasn't fair on them, so I had a bit of an argument with the hospital, and ultimately they let me into one of their pods, their metal pods outside, uh, stuck a piece of um, cotton wool effectively up my nose, and then we got the results back. And how painful was it for you? Um... The breathing was really painful. The breathing was it genuinely was like being stabbed. It was very, very strange. And that went on for about 36 hours. Um, I still don't have my full lung capacity back. So if I feel like, if I sound like I'm a bit out of breath at all, uh, it's, it's simply that. I just, I, don't, I can't quite pull in as much as I normally would. But more than anything, it was the physical pain. It was, it genuinely felt, every day I woke up feeling like I'd just played a, a game of international rugby. I was battered every morning having not really moved much the day before. Sounds awful. And then you were midst writing as well, uh, and you were writing about a pandemic? I was. <laughs> um, anyone that follows me on Twitter will, will, well, won't remember, because why the hell would you? But there was a tweet that I put out on the 31st of December. I was at my father-in-law's house in Cornwall, where we go most New Year's, and I thought, I've got to get this book started. So I sat down and I started the fourth book. And I, yeah. So that's the reason I mention that is that's my proof that this goes back before COVID-19 and before any of us heard of it. I started a book on the 31st of December. I was a third of the way through writing it uh, that is all about a pandemic, but not just a pandemic. The pandemic is, is effectively a terrorist attack and it comes from the Far East. Um, it's, it's much more exaggerated than obviously COVID-19. It's, it's a virus that does terrible things within three hours because that's what, you know, that's what you have to have in a thriller to make it work. But, um, but yeah, I was a third of, third of the way through it, and that was going to be the book that came out uh, next April, next March or next April. But uh, I've had to abandon it because I'm not sure I could write it in the current climate. I certainly don't think I could write it after what I've just been through. But I also don't think I should write it. It's, it would be wrong for me to, to effectively commercially gain from something that's about to kill a lot of people. Yeah, I, I just don't think it would be right to... To be, to be writing that book. So I've had to scrap the idea and go back to the drawing board. And for you, when you said they, aside from the, the volume of deaths, et cetera, you said it wouldn't be right for you because you've been through it. Would it just be too upsetting for you? Is it, was it that traumatic? Um, I, not, not, not so much that. I think more the passion for it's gone. Passion for it's gone because, yeah, the thing that I've been writing about is a variation on the thing that effectively beat me up and kept me in bed for two weeks. And I hate not moving around. I hate inactivity. I hate not doing stuff. I couldn't even read when I had this because it, everything was spinning. 
So I couldn't focus on anything. I ended up watching daytime TV, which is terrible. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I, I mean, I've now downloaded Disney Plus, but they didn't release it in time. So, so I, I was stuck with, with Judge Rinder, which I quite enjoy because I do know Judge Rinder very well. So, <laughs> so I, I spent most of my days sending him abusive text messages. <laughs> Have you done cases with him then? We should explain that Tony's a, a, a professional barrister. Yes, Rob, Rob and I have done, a, we've done a few cases together. We're basically direct contemporaries. I think he's a, he's a year senior to me. But we were, for example, we were involved in, together in one of the biggest, the biggest cannabis importations um, and cannabis organisations in history. And this, these were guys who were earning so much money that what, one of the things that really made the news was when they, see, when they went into one of their factories... They they went went under the floorboards and they found £600,000 in cash rotting because that's how much money they were earning. They had forgotten about it. (laughs) Uh, Wow. That's the biggest case that Rob and I did. (laughs) That's incredible. And so we should get to power play now that we know that you're well. So power play is the... I want to say it's your third book. Tell me I'm right. It is, yep, it is. And um, we should explain because it's part of the series, isn't it? So if people haven't yet discovered your exhilarating thrillers and the breakneck pace that you set in these, Tony, <laughs> then um, who do we need to know about? Um, the stars of the show, I guess, are uh, Michael Devlin um, and Joe Dempsey and Michael's fiance Sarah Truman. Uh, Michael Devlin is a criminal barrister, so people say, write what you know, so I read about a criminal barrister. Um, he's a much more interesting criminal barrister than me. He comes from a very suspicious, uh, dark background back in Belfast, uh, effectively, he is a criminal barrister from a family of villains. So whilst he's a morally upright, upstanding man, he's got a past and he has certain talents that those of us who do my job otherwise would not have. We might wish we had them. We don't have them. Um, Sarah Truman is his now fiance. He meets her in the first book, which is Killer Intent. And she's investigating a story that brings her to Michael's door and they end up having to go on the run together from the bad guys who are chasing them down. And then Joe Dempsey is the third character, who is probably the main character now in Power Play. Joe Dempsey is a former British intelligence agent. He's now an intelligence agent for the United Nations. And uh, again, we meet him in the first book, Killer Intent. And he's chasing down the guys that are chasing down Michael and Sarah. Uh, And in Power Play, he is investigating a a plane crash, uh, what seems to be a terrorist attack on a plane that happened to be carrying the most likely candidate for the American presidency in the upcoming elections. I should say at this point as well that we will obviously be chatting a lot about Power Play, but we don't want to spoil anything for anybody yep. who hasn't read the book yet or is partway through and wants to know a bit, know a bit more. So um, I assume that's something that you come up against quite a lot. Yeah, and how much you reveal. Uh, it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because... Um, with this book, the first chapter is the, is the plane crash. And so it's, it's okay to talk about that. We find out very early on who was on the plane. I think the ideas that I generally have for books are, are, are quite easy to sum up or, or, to, or to give you the, the germ of the idea without giving the book away. I mean, for example, my second book, uh, Mark for Death, that is a legal thriller. My other two books are political thrillers. That's a legal thriller that it really focuses on the barrister character uh, and also on Sarah Truman, his, uh, his fiancée. With, with that particular book, I was able to give quite a lot away because of the way I'd written it. Because effectively, what that book is about is uh, somebody from a case years ago uh, is now hunting down uh, the people who were involved in that case. 
And you can say that because it's quite obvious straight away. The first thing that happens in the book is, is a, a retired judge is killed. And they're immediately wondering whether or not he was killed by somebody he'd sentenced. Yeah, that's, that's the kernel of the book. That's the, uh, the, the, the hook of the book, I guess. And yet it doesn't really give anything away that's not in the first 10 pages. And how easily do these ideas come to you? Is that the first thing that you get, that initial kernel that then sends you off down the path to write it? Yes, very much. I, I've, got, I've got a list of them. I have a list that I made a long time ago of all different plots, and they're all one-line plots. And effectively, when I sit down to write, I'll decide which one's next, and then I'll spend a month or two thinking about it. And I won't write anything down, I don't take any notes, but just thinking around it until I've got something, uh, until I've got enough to sit down and get going with. What I normally end up with doesn't bear much relation to what I thought was going to come when I first sat down. But I do normally sit down with, with that, with at least a month's worth of thought behind it. Unfortunately, as we discussed, um, the, the, the book I'm about to write, uh, now that I've had to abandon the pandemic, <laughs> because of a deadline, I don't have the luxury of one month's thought. So I've now taken one of those one lines and um, today about to sit down and start writing it, but without the one month's thought behind it. So God knows where that's going. <laughs> so when is your deadline, Tony? They're, they're very fluid with deadlines, my publishers. Right. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very nice and they're very gentle about it. But um, I better have it in by the summer. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. The first draft. So what, three, I reckon three months, about three really? months. Yeah. Right, blimey. So it's going to be a voyage, into the, a voyage of discovery. Is it Stephen King who says that you should be able to write a book in a season, I think? Is it? I think so. Well, I, I'm never going to disagree with him. Nah, <laughs> no. And see the length of his books. How do you write that in a season? <laughs> I know, that's true. Maybe he means a football season, Tony. It, it, it could well mean that, couldn't it? I mean, it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, but what is that now? 18 months? Yeah, exactly. Well, look, um, everybody that comes on bestsellers is going to read a little bit of their book for you. And I just think... Um, Personally, that it's really nice when you hear it from the, in the author's voice, especially now because a lot of the audio books, the author won't do them. I don't know. Do you do yours or do you get actors in, Tony? We get actors in to do them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my, my, I'd be happy to read them apart from the female voices. <laughs> so uh, we, we, we thought it was probably better to get an actor to do it. <laughs> well, we're going to give you a bit of power play. And um, as we've discussed, it's, you know, it, it revolves around the, the plane crash, which kicks off this adventure really so there's there's no spoilers here so i think it's page four from memory or something isn't it but yeah, yeah, from power play yeah this will give you a taste of it here's tony kent reading from his book one second it's impossible to be sure what is faster the speed of the human thought warning that something is very wrong or the speed with which an explosion can spread throughout a fully fueled commercial jumbo jet and so it is impossible to know if any of them david webb Jim Nelson, Jade Cox, or anyone else on flight PA-16 was aware of the moment their lives were ripped away. The explosion began in the luggage hold, a single case filled to capacity with military-grade C4 and a crude homemade timer. The C4 itself would have been enough to tear the plane in two, enough to guarantee no survivors. But someone was taking no risks. The case had been carefully placed at the closest possible point to the base of the left wing, ensuring that the explosion ignited the fuel store within. The combination of the explosives and the fuel was devastating. The smooth, uneventful journey of the Boeing 747 was brought to an abrupt end, with white-hot jet fuel flames engulfing every inch of the massive flying machine. 
No time for a brace warning. No time for oxygen masks. No time for crash positions. Just the sudden fatal introduction of Hellflyer. Flight PA-16 from London's Heathrow to New York's JFK ended its journey in a violent storm of blazing debris, raining its charred remains across a five-mile stretch of the Atlantic Ocean. Tony, is that somebody at your door? It is, yeah. Do you want to go, go sort it? Go it's get fine, it. yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, look, this is part of the deal, isn't it, now? This is, these are the times we're living yeah. in. Right then, we've got we've had a little sweepy as to who it was at your door. I th- I thought it was Avon. <laughs> Natalie, who did you go for at his door? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go uh, Amazon. Amazon. Okay. No, it was, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was Amazon delivering my microphone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so the second you, half of this pod is going to sound amazing. <laughs> could you hear all that over the uh, over the reading, or should I do it again? Or. I'm, you know what, in these times, I'm kind of happy. I think leave it in. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. No, I, I just, just wonder what you guys wanted. I think it's fine. Thanks, I've, I've got, I'm homeschooling two kids at the moment as well, so any one of them could come in at any point too. So. Yeah, jo- Joseph could come wandering in in a moment, that's true. <laughs> that's <laughs> fine. Leave it in. Yeah. Leave it all in. Leave it all in. So after hearing what you've just read, I think, I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time as well, but just reading the first few chapters of your book alone, you get a sense of cinematic prose and the way that it's written is that very much how it comes to you in kind of scenes that you're seeing that will then play out on some screen elsewhere exactly um i i I think i see the whole thing very visually when i'm writing it and i like to try to describe it very visually Uh, i think i've said this probably to phil before but but my, my entire sort of intention is to write a is to write a film or project a film into someone's head I want them to be able to read it, to get completely lost in what they're reading, but I really want them to be able to see it. The, the, the best thing for me is when somebody tells me that they've cast my book. Oh, so-and-so should be this guy and so-and-so should be that guy. When they do that, I, I know they've got it. It's, it's absolutely my, 100% the, 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 the thing that I try to do, so I'm really happy that you've said it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, are, you were saying as well that it is in development. Which book is in development yes. at the moment? It's, uh, it's, we've had a step forward, actually, in terms of that. We, we were doing the entire series um, as a TV series. Uh, so we were going to have series one would have been Killer Intent, uh, series two would have been Mark for Death, series three, Power Play, etc. That still is the overall plan, except because Mark for Death is, uh, is a slightly different genre to the rest of what I write, we've decided, um, well, the production company who I've been I'm working with have decided to pull Mark for Death out and actually turn that into a film. Uh, the idea being that we could make that relatively cheaply. <laughs> and by making that, because it's all set in London and it's, it's courtrooms and it, there's, there's nothing... There's, killer Intent would cost a lot of money. Power Play would cost a hell of a lot of money. Um, whereas Mark for Death, much more domestic. We have a particular actor who is very close to signing on. <laughs> and the idea is that if we, can, if we take Mark for Death and turn it into a, into a film... Um, it will be the last thing we need to get this actor's signature. Uh, and um, it would almost be uh, almost a pilot for the TV show. Exciting. Ah, that is really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really exciting idea. It's a shame that you can't film now because London's deserted. Yeah, exactly. You, you wouldn't need any permissions, would you? you could be... <laughs> I reckon we can even just waltz into the old Bailey. <laughs> but, you know, when you say about... Um, budgets there does that ever affect your writing i mean this the, the reading you've just done you've blown up a jumbo jet 
So do you ever think, oh, I better not blow up a jumbo jet because that's going to cost a fortune to turn into a film or a TV thing? <laughs> uh, no, never even occurs to me, to be honest. I'm fairly sure they don't blow up jumbo jets when they do that in the films anyway. <laughs> 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 the budget for this film has gone completely off the wall with only filmed five minutes. But, uh, <laughs> but no, no it, do, you know, do you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book, and for me, that is the film. You know, I'm writing it so you can see it already in, in, in my own way. It would be wonderful to see it realised on screen and, and to see it realised by talented people because uh, you, know, you just know that they'll do it well. And, and that, that would be great. But without, you know, without sort of jumping on Lee Child's old bandwagon about it, and I never used to believe him when he used to say this until I, got to the, until I actually went into the whole development process and realised how you have to cut yourself off from it. Really, the book is my thing. And if they can make something of it, great. And if they can't, well, I've already made my thing. So, so no. You just I, need I, to I make sure you can get the rights back, don't you? So that if they cast Tom Cruise in one of the roles, you can pitch <laughs> the rights back. Precisely. And let's be honest, I'm not, I'm not going to say no, am I, to Tom Cruise? <laughs> He's completely and utterly wrong. However, it still get the film made. <laughs> Although I'm also assuming that being a barrister yourself, when it comes to contracts and any legal framework, you're totally sorted. Yeah, I was. Yeah, we were fa fairly lucky with that. Actually, um, I've I, I own part of a civil law. I'm a criminal barrister, but I own part of a commercial law firm, and so we had a whole team working on that at the time. We we had a specialist lawyer working on it, and then in the back room we had them on it as well. So um, so, so yeah, there was there, there was great care taken with this particular uh, particular thing, mainly because I um, uh, mainly uh, weirdly you say it because of Tom Cruise. Um, wow. I didn't want that happening. I absolutely did not want... I mean, obviously, it was never going to be him, but I didn't want someone to suddenly come up with some ridiculous idea uh, that changed everything. I mean, at the, during the process, there was a one moment where somebody said, well, can't Michael Devlin be Michelle Devlin? Um, to which the answer was, no, he absolutely can't, and that's why that clause is in that contract. So does that mean you have some kind of say in casting, regardless? Um, in development, yeah, in mm. development. There, I would have a say in casting. Um, I've got a role in the process. But, uh, but mainly I do have a veto. So. Can I just take you back to the beginning of when you sat down to write your first book? Because I know you've written since you were a kid and you've always enjoyed stories and obviously that's been part of your career as well in law is telling stories to some extent. Um, but what we are really keen to do on bestsellers is to not be snobbish about anything. And I know just from various people that I chat to and, you know, sort of see every so often and hear on social media that there can be a degree of snobbery around thrillers and crime writing and whether yeah. you got any kind of avalanche of that when you first started writing and kind of poked your head up and said, you know what, I am actually going to write a crime thriller. Um, not, fr I, I didn't, I, I was very detached from the industry. I was very, very much just ensconced in what I do for a living. Um, the criminal bar, the bar generally, but the criminal bar particularly, is is a life, it, it, far more so than a career. You, you, very, you very rarely have friends outside of it uh, because it's such an unusual way of living. You know, it, it's, everything is short notice, cancellations are rife, and the only people who really understand it are other barristers. And you end up being mainly friends with other barristers. And because of that, I didn't really know anybody in the writing industry at all. I had, I had no contacts of any sort. So I was never in a position to have any kind of a blowback from the writing industry. There was, it just wasn't possible. My first introduction to the writing industry was going up to... I was actually going to Crime Fest in Bristol. My second introduction was going to Harrogate. Um, and, 
yeah, you're there and you're meeting these great people and these very famous people and they're also accommodating and lovely. So my experience within the industry was absolutely 100, 100% positive. I'm completely aware of what you're talking about. I mean, there is horrible snobbery, mm. but I've, I, I've never put myself in a position to experience it from other writers because I've only ever been around the writers who are also at the end of the snobbery. Uh, <laughs> however, I have experienced it from barristers. Mm. I have experienced it in the law because I will talk to various people and they'll be just thinking, what, why you, why don't you write something real? Why don't you write something proper? And you just think, well, piss off because this is what I like to read. I like re- I write. I don't write something because it's more commercial. I write it because I like reading it. It's it's the stuff that I like to read, and therefore it's the stuff that I want to write. And ironically, one of the least supportive initially was my pupil master, who was who couldn't understand why I didn't want to write Patrick O'Brien and why I was instead writing Lee Child. Um, and that I got him back by killing him in the second book in a very nasty way. <laughs> Uh, and luckily he's now come round and, and quite enjoys it now he's got past it he quite enjoys it but the person who was really supportive was a QC called Andrew Trollope uh, who is Anthony Trollope's grandson so, or great grandson so the, the person who comes from the kind of pedigree to be really really snobby <laughs> thought it was fantastic and loved the thing was, uh, was, was really encouraging have you, I noticed that you use in, in power play there's, there's little nuggets and because I know you a little bit better than, than, than most writers you can spot where you're getting your own back on some of these barristers that have been <laughs> uh-huh. mean to you. There's a really early scene where Michael Devlin is carrying a champagne bucket through a bar and you write, uh, he'd never understood the appeal, a bar filled to the brim with drunken lawyers, many of them lying to the others about their recent successes. Exactly. I would have thought it would be quite easy to work out if a barrister's lying about a success because you can just check the record, OK? Oh, no, no, it's not so much that. Oh, it's much more, it's much more um, focused than that. They lie oh, okay. about what they've said. They don't care. Winning and losing a trial, you know, it's if you win a trial or lose a trial, you, you obviously you've played your part in it and you have to and you can take the credit or you could have made the mistake. But really, it's all small battles within the trial, because uh, ultimately you want the, you want to win the small battles because that doesn't involve 12 members of the public making the final decision. Yeah, that's kind of out of your hands. So it's always you, you, that bar is a bar called Daly's. It's at the top of Essex Street, just across from the Royal Courts of Justice. And next time you're in London, I'll take you in there, Phil, because honestly, it is a sight to behold. It's just a load of pompous bastards bullshitting each other. And I, I've never ever understood the appeal. And barristers go there from from the moment they become barristers. They, they, they've probably been to a magistrate's court twice, and they're already in there lying to each other. Well, they said this, and I said that. I remember sitting in there once, listening to a guy, and I, I, in the end I said, look, I've got to interrupt you. I was there. You didn't say any of this. <laughs> it's just not true. Because um, I guess I get my storytelling out on the page, and they get their storytelling out by lying to each other while drunk. But when you were signed to your agency, they put a press release out to the bookseller saying part of the appeal to them of you was that you'd been immersed in, in the world of criminals and all the rest of it. And I thought, wow, has he represented some proper wrong-uns then? Yes, <laughs> some, some proper wrong ones, yeah. <laughs> and some innocent people, I hasten to add. <laughs> right. and, and was it ever alarming for you to be in that world if you're representing people who are presumably accused of heinous crimes? Um, weirdly enough, it, if you're representing proper villains, then it's, it's actually almost a pleasure. Because if you're representing petty criminals in the magistrate's court, they are, and obviously they get you for free. None of them are paying. They are demanding, they are arrogant, they are nasty, uh, and they are petty. If you're representing somebody 
uh, who is accused of being at the, the, the top of an organised crime organisation. It's a career to them. And you are an essential component of their career and they treat you with respect and they, if you lose, you lose. And they understand it's not down to you and sometimes the evidence is against them. It's, it's, it's all about drawing a professional veil. And if you draw that professional veil, it is much more pleasurable to be representing serious criminals than it is to be dealing with, with the 98% of criminals that are convinced in their own head that they're Al Capone, but are in reality shoplifters and um, petty thugs. So you never felt threatened or menaced or anything? Uh, I've been menaced. Um, I've had people wait for me outside courts and things like that. Never clients, normally witnesses. Because quite often, depending on the case, if it's a case of violence, well, then in, in a circumstance like that, quite often the, the people who are in the witness box are often every bit as guilty as the people who are in the dock. It's an old cliche that when there's a fight, the winner gets arrested and, and the loser becomes a witness, as opposed to actually deciding who was in the wrong. I'm a big believer there should be, there should be a defence, a legal defence, very hard, very hard to work out how it could be done. But there should be a legal defence of, you really asked for that, <laughs> because the world would be a better place. Now you've got somebody saying, well, I want him arrested. Yeah, but you really asked for it. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so there have been occasions, two or three occasions, where I've walked out of court and there are people waiting for me. And interestingly, in those occasions, it's, it's quite weird that what the mind can do the sight of a wig and a gown can make you not realise that the guy that's talking to you is six foot two and 17 and a half stone. You suddenly, for some reason, they don't notice any of that. So they wait for you outside. And then when you walk outside, they realise you're twice their size and, and not completely unable to defend yourself. They, they back off quite quickly. Because boxing's in your background as well. And you represented Anthony Joshua, right? Yes. yes. So you've got some good people in your court. <laughs> I've got some good people in my corner, yeah. I, I'm not sure I could phone him up. <laughs> I think he, he, might be, he might be a bit busy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've, my, my background's been very helpful. I've, um, I always looked older than I was. I, I started at 22, I think I was, when I did my first case of my own. And I looked about 30. And again, I was, I was literally just coming off my, my last fight as a heavyweight boxer. And so I was able to go into cells with some very serious people while very young where most barristers of that call would be, for no fault of their own, just the way they look, would be, um, would be told to get out very quickly. Mm. I remember once, the, the one time I was intimidated by a um, client was very early on. He was a former Foreign Legion soldier. Oh, he's huge. I mean, he was massive. He, he was about my height, but he was two of me across. He had a broken arm where the police had broken it while arresting him. He'd been tasered seven times. He seven? Had, he, seven, he had taken seven sets of tasers to bring him down. And he had been arrested for uh, stealing gold from Heathrow Airport. Uh, he hadn't accounted for the, what the gold would do to the van, so the van couldn't really get much speed up as he was escaping, so he was caught. And I, and I went in, he said, so he said, what's the uh, verdict then? And I said, well, I, th I think you've got no chance of... You obviously have no chance of fighting this. You've got to plead guilty. Yeah, but what do I get if I plead guilty? I said, well, looking at this, the guidelines, I think you're looking at about 16 years. And it was the most terrifying thing to tell him that because I was thinking, I'm going to say 16 years, he's going to kick off and I'm going to get hurt, whether he's got one arm or not. Uh, his reaction was, ah, win some, lose some, don't you? <laughs> um, and no. that was the biggest relief. It's the only time I've ever been intimidated by a client. And it was, uh, and it was, he didn't mean to do it. It was just the circumstances and... The biggest relief, I think, of my career was that moment of win some, lose some. 
Wow. Um, and can I, I'm interested in, you were saying earlier that in terms of when you have actors reading your books for the audiobook version, you don't do it yourself because you'd feel uncomfortable putting on a female voice, for example. Yeah. But you have a female character as one of your main characters, and obviously yes. you're a man, so the whole kind of writing for a different gender and how that plays out, because, again, this is a sweeping generalisation, I know. But in some thriller genres written by men, often the women don't get much of a look in or don't get sort of fully rounded as much I don't mm. think personally as a female reader and how conscious you were of, of making sure that, that didn't happen in your books um I think I've, I've been quite conscious of it Sarah Sarah is one of the three main characters but I do have to accept that she is tied to Michael mm. uh and really she's not one of the three main characters she is She's the she's the, the sort of the secondary character, the main secondary character after Michael and Dem uh, after Devlin and Dempsey, and to, if I was to try to pretend otherwise, I'd be lying. It's, it's the way it's evolved. They were always my two main characters. However, I think she's a strong character. I think she's an independent character. She's got her own roles in each book, but there is that tie to Michael. However, I I have been very careful to ensure that there are strong female characters in in all of them. I think my as a female character in the um, second book, in Mark for Death, called Joel Levy, who is leading the investigation into the murders that are occurring, that are leading to Michael. And I think, I mean, I think she's every bit as strong a character as, as any male character as I've ever written. And the feedback I've had on her is very much to that extent. I mean, she's ultimately, if anything, she's the hero of the book. Mm -hmm. My third book, Power Play, there is, I can't say too much about it, but there is a character called Eden Grace, who is a fundamentally important part of, of, of the book. And, and again, she's not Devlin, uh, she's not Dempsey, pardon me, she's not the hero, uh, because you know, th that's like saying that uh, you take a female character and just make them the hero of a Jack Reacher book. These are Dempsey Devlin mm. books, ultimately. But to the extent that she can be a hero in this book, she's a hero. And I think, again, uh, she's very well-rounded. And I don't really think that if you are somebody who has lived a life surrounded by people and surrounded by men and surrounded by women... I don't think I, I don't agree with with the slight perception of why well, it's like saying that a straight person can't write a gay character or mm. a white person can't write a black character. Maybe if you've never known a gay person, you might struggle. Maybe if you've never known a black person, you might struggle. The reality is, we all live in a world, and if we only write about the the one demographic that we know, well, then where does that end? Because to say that I can only write men, for example, if, that, if, if someone would say, mm -hmm. well, you can only write straight white men. Well, that's not a demographic either, is it? So we actually we've got to write straight white men from England um, and straight white men or, or who used to play rugby. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's just, it's, where does it end? I think the reality is if you know people and you're confident you can reflect the differences in people, then, then you should write them. And I do agree with you. Sometimes the female characters in this genre can become a secondary thought. I'm a big fan of David Baldacci, who I think is mm -hmm. exceptional at writing female characters. Uh, but but yeah, I, I do agree. It's um, it is something that that does kind of sometimes happen in this genre. But I would like to think that that not in my books. <laughs> would you ever ask Victoria to check anything if you if you're particularly keen on <laughs> you know a, a key scene of a female character? Would you ever say, look, do you think a woman would say that, or do you not bother? She always reads them. She reads she reads everything as I write it. At the end of every day that I've that where I've done any substantial writing, she'll read it. Um, I write quite a lot in a day. I, I generally write about five to 6,000 words a day, um, wow. which I, know, I now know apparently is quite a lot. So she's got quite a lot to read at the end of every day. And 
she does she has occasionally said yeah i don't but but again when she says i don't think so and so would say that she normally means the character mm. as opposed Rather to than the, the gender. gender yeah yeah the, the, the one the one occasion where i did make a huge change because of victoria is i i had a i had my first ever kissing scene in the first draft of power play so hard um, to write she laughed throughout every single word of the chapter <laughs> and then for a solid five minutes after finishing the chapter. <laughs> and there is now no kissing scene in PowerPoint. <laughs> Did you try to do rewrites on it first before you just decided to kill it? No, no, no. I, uh, when someone laughs like that, it's just got to go. <laughs> <laughs> just... Amazing. Tony, I've got to ask you, because um, we only touched on the boxing, how good were you? Could you have made it? Made it to, in, in, well, to, to that world-class level. Um, yeah, to world champion level, to belt level. I reckon I probably could have made it to domestic belt level. I could have made it to domestic belt level. I, I know a lot of the guys um, that did in my era. I had a weak era, but you don't know you're going to have a weak era until, you, uh, until that era's gone. So I made a decision in my early 20s not to do something because I was basing it on the era before me, and I wasn't as good as them. Whereas, so the era before you, are you talking people like Bruno and that? Yeah, and, before uh, you? Even, yeah, yeah, but Bruno, even up to the likes of Scott Welch and people like that. Right. Yeah, they they were good fighters. They were yeah, they were strong. They were they were very good. They they weren't yeah, they they were domestic level of fighter. But guys like that, I yeah, I would have competed with them. I would have competed. They would have won. As it turns out, the era that I when I left and went off and became a barrister, the uh, the era was terrible, <laughs> the worst it's ever been, and I reckon I probably could have achieved something then. Um, and I think the era now is is awful. You know, we have Tyson Fury, who's got some skills, but seems a lot better than he is because of who he's up against. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, the answer is, I guess, I, I could only have done what I achieved, what I did do. Um, I won a lot of titles at amateur. I, you know, boxed internationally. I've got a very good record. I'll, I'll tell you the story that made the decision because it probably answers the question better. Because <laughs> um, boxing is all about levels. I, w- I was a good domestic boxer. I boxed with my uncle, who was a lot better than a good domestic boxer, but is 26 years older than me. And at the time, I was 16 and a half stone, uh, pretty much without a pick of fat on me. And he was about 21 stone um, with a lot of fat on him. So he would have been pushing 50. Uh, and I was in my early 20s. And... He's the person who trained me to box. And I've always known he's, he was better than me. I was never as good as him, never, never close to being as good as him. But almost nobody was. He was an incredible boxer. And for personal reasons, he retired before he achieved what he could have achieved. But some of the people that he beat went on to win, inc- you know, to, to have incredibly illustrious careers. He was a, he was a world-class boxer. Uh, however, he's 26 years older and he's four or five stone heavier. So therefore, you'd think that might even out. And when I was 22, uh, when, yeah, basically when it was time to really make the decision, because I was about to start my legal career, when it was time to really make the decision, we were sparring. And I hit him with a left hook. And my left hook, I had two... I, had, I was a hard puncher. I wasn't the best boxer. I was a very hard puncher. And I hit him with a left hook that invariably would knock people out. Always. And so I didn't mean it. I stepped back thinking, oh, what have I done? And as I stepped back, he, he pushed me in the chest and said, as a good punch, son, you hit someone else like that, they'll be on their arse. <laughs> At which point I just looked at him and I thought, A, why are you not? <laughs> because everyone else generally is. B, how are you now still teaching me <laughs> after I've hit you like that? And C, I need to take these gloves off and never box again because I've just been shown my level. 
So I think in, in the longest possible answer to your question, Phil, that's the answer. <laughs> I think in some eras, maybe. Um, in, in his era, no way. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting story as well, though. And, and I wonder if that's spilled over into your writing, because I find that you have to have a degree of confidence in writing as well. And, and whether you sort of kept it so long before, I guess, you sat down and, and properly wrote your first book, was it because there was a lack of confidence there and you saw other people you thought were better than yourselves? Or, or what was it behind no, that? No, it was, it was purely work. I, um, I started my first book when I was in my, before I went to the bar. Mm. Um, I wrote the first four or five chapters of it. And I then became a baron. I then went off to start my, my um, pupillage. And I'd always bought into the, the press releases about uh, David Baldacci. And they always portrayed him as this writer-lawyer. Yeah, he's a lawyer in Washington and he's a writer. And so I thought, well, I can do both as well. That's fantastic. So I wrote these first four chapters. Then I went off to go and do my pupillage. And I thought, well, yeah, I'll, get, I'll, I'll bed in for a couple of weeks. And, um, and then after that's done, I'll go back and I'll be able to just do the do together. Um, and I was 22 years old and I did not touch it again until I was 33. Uh, because for no other reason, not, not a lack of confidence, but because David Baldacci lied to us. <laughs> um, he sold absolute power and never had to work again because it was made into a film immediately and was a worldwide hit. So he was never a writer-lawyer. He was a lawyer who became a writer. Uh, and so, so the answer is simply David Baldacci lied. And so it was only when I was 33 years old, I made an enormous life choice. Um, in terms of what I do for a living that allowed me to go to write. Because I, I need, I, I, I hate to say this, makes me feel, sound like a lovey, but I got to the point where I just felt like I needed to do this. I was thinking about it constantly. I just wanted to do it. And, and I knew I didn't have time to do it. And so I ended up leaving my chambers and setting up my own practice. Now, the chambers I was in was, hands down, without question, the top chambers in the country. Um, it was like leaving Man United to go and just play keepy-uppy in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody could understand it, but I just, I had to do it. because I had to take the risk because I, I, I had this compulsion to do this and, and it was obsessing me. And so I did that. I took a one-year sabbatical, effectively, and went and set up my own practice and then never went back. And I now have a legal practice that where I just take on whatever I want to take on. And then when I'm, when I'm not doing that, I'm writing. So hang on a minute, are you saying you are a writer-lawyer now? Yes, but only because I had to create a new way of doing that. <laughs> so he did still lie to us. <laughs> I say that, he, he also gave me a great quote for power play, so I can't moan too much. <laughs> Tony, I feel I should redress the balance from uh, earlier when I was talking about how often female characters can sometimes be sidelined. To say that also I think sometimes not enough credit is given to crime thriller authors about the really sharp characterization you can do. There was one bit that I read in Powerplay that I just wanted to read to you um, that I just thought summed this up perfectly because you created a character in a world that they lived in in literally like two lines and it was when Dempsey uh, goes to suss out one of the key people as part of his investigation and he says... He moved to the open plan kitchen area behind Quilty's seat, filled a chipped highball glass with water from the oversized but understocked refrigerator. And I just love that because it just shows how you just get such a sense of a person out of so few words. And I think that's sometimes something that doesn't really get given enough credit for is how how much you can say by so little in the genre you write in. That's very, very nice of you. Um, I, I forgot writing that part, but I did like that part. <laughs> no, thank you very much. It's, um, 
I think it's important to, to do that, though, isn't it? I think it's important. You, I, 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 I don't like the idea of, of, of cipher characters. I don't like the idea that people you're going to meet throughout the book, they may not play a huge physical role in the book, so therefore we don't need to know much about them. I like to know something about everybody. Um, and I think that's, that, that readers like that too. So I think it's, it's worth the effort to try to, to come up with something that tells, that tells the reader about a character that, that allows them to, to, to know a character, even if we're not going to see much of them. And on a sort of writerly question as well, I know that writerly is not really a word. <laughs> um, are there I was words... completely sold on that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should explain yeah. at this point that you are signed and about to have your debut novel published, aren't you? I haven't got a publishing deal yet, but I have got a literary agent and I've written my first book. I'm writing my second, but I'm just really Which, What's the genre? Uh, it is commercial fiction and it's not thriller. But, it, but it's very writerly. <laughs> it's very writerly. <laughs> that's what you can expect from my books uh, lots of made up words um, but language is great you can play with it but on that I found when I've when I've been writing and the thing that slowed me down is editing which is such a bore at times editing and editing and editing but the words that you didn't realize you use all the time that you then have to go through and take out yes which are yeah. your kind of your killer words if you like they change in every book um, because you become so aware the editing process makes you so aware of those words that you never make that mistake again. Uh, and then you discover in the next editing process that you've made exactly the same mistake with a completely new word. <laughs> so honestly, it just keeps changing. It just keeps changing. My first time, the first time round, I apparently used the expression and yet um, so often uh, that, my, that the guy who first helped me edit the book before it was professionally edited by my, edit by my publishers, a friend of mine who works at Random House, who was going back to snobbery, a complete snob, complete <laughs> snob, hates thrillers. And he's, if it's not pure literature, then he's got no interest. But because he's a very good friend of mine, he had no choice. Hmm. Um, and when he read it, he said, he actually used the expression, I'm going to help you with this because just, be, let me get it right, just because you're writing shit doesn't mean that your <laughs> writing has to be shit. <laughs> 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 So, um, so, so, yeah, so th there are uses for literary snobs. And it was him who said, that, uh, he said, if I ever see the expression, and yet, again, he said, I'm going to hit you with a manuscript. <laughs> and yet, you're still friends with Mr. And yet. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I am very, very good friends. I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I couldn't not be friends with him. He's, he's played a huge, huge role in get, getting me to where I am now simply by um, being willing to, yeah, willing to proofread things he hates. <laughs> so just where are we at with the TV stuff? When is it going to be on the screen? Do we know? Um, no, we're still, in the, we're still in the development process for it. It's, um, it needs to get to a certain level before we can take it to the networks. Um, so it doesn't have a network. It has a production company, um, which is... Right. A, a, there are two ways of doing it. You either go straight in with the network or you go in with an independent production company. Um, I went in the second route uh, because it was Duncan Jones's company and you know, I, lo I love his movies and... You kind of you're assured of the quality that you're getting if you go that way. Um, it means it's not quite as direct a route, but at the same time, you're not going to end up with a product you hate. Very close to signing on a fairly famous actor for uh, Michael Devlin, which would make a big difference. Once we've got him, we could. Uh, we I can say who we were trying to go for for, for Dempsey because uh, because he said no eventually, um, which was Gerard Butler. Uh, who I thought would be a very uh, good Dempsey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, he said no on the back of Power Play, ironically, which is the thing we thought would... Well, it's the thing my, the production company thought would really tip the scales. And I had a feeling it wouldn't because I'd seen Olympus Has Fallen. 
and oh. I just too close I know to that what he'd done before. It's too, and that's his big franchise. He's made three of them now. And I did say this at the time. I said it's just a bit too. Cl- it's not. I know it's not the same. It's just a bit too close. And although, if it's any comfort to you, with. in my head, I've got Dempsey as younger than Gerard Butler. In my head, Dempsey was. Uh, in my head, Dempsey is Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Mm. Um, right. Always was. Always will be. <laughs> and, uh, but no, it's, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But in, for me, it was Gerard Butler ten years ago. Yes. Yeah. So who would that be now then? It's uh, really hard. Really hard to think of one. It really is. I spend all the time watching when we're watching TV thinking, could he be, could he, could it be <laughs> quite a lot of that? <laughs> but you are in that same zone a bit in terms of Jack Reacher because there's a certain build to your character as well. So I guess, yeah, that's kind of where you're coming from too. But the Duncan Jones mm. um, connection is exciting because, you know, films like Source Code and Moon, uh, yeah. Source Code especially, I thought was so gripping and mm. it must feel thrilling to know that you're going to get a director's vision like that attached to yeah. your stories. It, it, I mean, that's why that's why we went that route. Mm. It, it would have been quite easy to to go off and just and put it with BBC or with Netflix or where rather than taking the the, the slightly less direct route. But you're just not guaranteed that level of ability. Whereas I know Duncan will direct the pilot and he'll direct the uh, finale. He won't direct them all. He won't direct the full series. But once you've got the pilot and the finale, that sets the tone, mm. and it sets. You know, he's, he'll be executive producing as well. And also, I can't I can't not mention Stuart. Stuart Fenegan is is Duncan's producer on all of those films. Has basically due a lot of a lot of the credit for a lot for, for for what's done with those films. So having that two man team yeah, that you can completely trust is is very important. So can you give us a book recommendation? Yes. Um, my first instinct is always to say Steve Kavanagh, but I think a lot of people will be saying Steve Kavanagh and for the legal thriller side. I'm going to go slightly more off the wall and say Mason Cross. Um, I think Mason Cross' stuff is fantastic. It starts with The Killing Season. Uh, Killing Season has, I think, one of the best bad guys I, I've seen uh, put down. I remember reading it and just thinking, I wonder if he could take Joshua, who was the main bad guy from my first book. And to have that kind of instinct just shows you how much... Ha- how he brought it alive because obviously in my head Joshua is a, is, is a living breathing thing and he brought his bad guy alive enough in the killing season for me to be comparing him to the one that's alive in my head and uh, uh, it just really very well written very gripping very tight books um, there are four in the series he's written other books as well he writ, um, he's written part of me uh, as MJ Cross I can't remember the name of it. He'll kill me for that. But um, <laughs> what she saw last night, I think it's called, which is about a murder on the Caledonian sleeper train that came out last year. But his series is an American-based series, uh, and his main character is Carter Blake, who is a um, a chap who finds people. Um, but the whole key of him is that he's um, he's very nondescript himself. He's not Jack Reacher. He's not he's not Joe Dempsey. He's a a very normal person who can blend into the background, so probably slightly more realistic in terms of uh, of what these people really look like. I could obviously talk to you about more writerly things for a long time <laughs> as well, but I wish you the best of luck with um, whatever book four turns out to be and, you know, how that changes, as I'm sure it will, over the coming weeks and months and, and can't wait to see Powerplay on screen. Thank you very much.
Thanks for this. It's great fun. Wow. And just glad that you're well as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I'm glad that yes. you've come through. <laughs> Thanks very much. And hopefully you guys won't get it. If I'm hoping now that with enough people... You can't get it through Zoom, can you, I think? Uh, well, if you can, then there's a lot of people in trouble because Zoom is now taking over the world. I was going to say, you're talking to a barrister right now and do not by any, you know, do not link Zoom and COVID-19. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, listen, stop thank recording. you for making time to speak to us. No, right? no, th- thanks, thanks for having me. On a me. day when you should have been cracking your fourth novel. Yes. Uh, that's really, really cool of you to do that. I, I will get the first chapter written tonight. Brilliant. Thanks very much, guys. It was um, a pleasure. So that was Tony Kent. And as you rightly said at the beginning of this podcast, Natalie, I've, I do know Tony very well and I've interviewed him on the programme before, on the radio programme, and then spent a, an evening on the pop with him and his missus at Harrogate Crime Festival, which we have to get this podcast to next year, assuming the that it's pop. back on next year. Yeah, right on the pop. That's what we say in Birmingham for alcohol. Um, <laughs> but Harrogate Crime Festival, I don't think you've been and you'd love it. It's brilliant. Really, really brilliant. Set in the Old Swan, which is the place where Agatha Christie re-emerged after she went missing for two weeks. <laughs> and everything you would want about a spooky old building is in the Old Swan. The first time I stayed there, I remember walking down a corridor to my room and it felt like it was moving and it, and it was creaking and it was just, it was everything you'd want, you know. When well, you, you say that, I do get really me. freaked out in really spooky places, so I don't know if I would want that. Oh, no, you want the authentic crime experience, don't you, when you're staying in a at a crime writers festival? Do you, though? <laughs> do you? <laughs> really? I mean, is that bad? <laughs> well, I also quite like, you know, a warm and welcoming uh, room to sit and watch something trashy on TV that's not going to give me nightmares. Sure, when it's a holiday, but when you're at a crime writers' <laughs> festival, come on, Nat, that surely you're all When in Harrogate, get with the programme. <laughs> so, Tony Kent, um, what I was going to ask you was what you made of that book, because I think I know I'm getting to know you better and better as the podcast progresses, and I think I'm not sure this is this would have been something you'd have gone to prior to bestsellers. Yeah, no, I might not have picked it up actually, and you spoke very highly of his writing and obviously I trust your opinion um otherwise why would I be spending all this time with you um and I really enjoyed it I kind of started it and I wasn't quite sure what to expect and it just drew me in straight away and you know as as we were saying there it's so visual so much of what he writes he really creates really good scenes that you can absolutely see playing out as if they were an action movie and that's just really fun it was just totally enjoyable and who doesn't want that in a book? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really recommend that. Power play by Tony Kent. Also, um, the boxing I found really interesting. You know, he loves his boxing and the fact that he was, well, he said he wasn't close to making it, but I, I suspect he was probably closer than he was letting us letting on, you know? Yeah, I think he was pretty serious about it from what he was saying and obviously very talented at that too. And and there's just, you know, so many fascinating things as well. And I kind of love the the merging of his legal work and his writing and then how that sort of feeds into the adaptations of his work as well and you know what's going to come out of that and yeah just fascinating yeah he's a good man tony kent and we both really enjoyed that if you have anything you want to tell us it's bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com preferably about books i mean we're not really any good on medical stuff or ghost stories or good places to eat or nice recipes (laughs) (laughs) no just stick to books maybe 
Yeah, because I fear that bestseller season two is just going to become a cooking podcast. Do you? Why? Because <laughs> you're obsessed with food. Every time we do any, <laughs> any chat, you always bring food into it. And I, I wonder if like you're... You know, like uh, some classic villain in a book going, well, I'm going to turn this into a food box. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you know, don't you, food is so important, <laughs> don't you think? I mean, I can't dispute that as a fact because without it we would die. So, yes, you are technically <laughs> right. <laughs> but isn't that your, you know, part of your enjoyment of every day is what you eat, no? I mean... You're looking at me on a Zoom, so you know the answer today. It's too much, probably. Enjoying what I eat too much, yeah. I feel like I always, like, I always inadvertently say too much and, like, you're quite discreet. I'm clearly less well-trained. Yeah, I mean, yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> Just wait till I have a glass of Chardonnay. Woof, the stories. <laughs> oh, now that would be good. Bestsellers, the drunk episode. Yeah, like drunk history. Drunk yeah. bestsellers. Should we do that one yeah. time? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas special. Christmas special, yeah. With no authors in it, just me and you leathered. <laughs> Talking about the best books with the best canapes. Have I told you about my obsession with canapes? I love a canapé. Do you? Yeah. Not for me. Not for me. Really? No, I don't like the canapes. Not a fan of the canape. Oh. I find with the canape that um, it's almost like being teased, isn't it? The tray gets put in front of you. Mm. And if you if you take something you like... You go, yeah, brilliant. I'll have the entire tray, please. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's yeah. it's the equivalent. That to me, the equivalent of sampling the wine. Yeah, that's very good. I'll take the bottle. Don't just give me something so tiny. Yeah, but then, don't you like just having the variety of different things? And it's all like mini. That's my, mini's the problem with it. Okay. That's my problem with the canape. Yeah. Oh. I think um, the variety. Yeah, that's fine. I I enjoy that, but. Don't tantalise me and then take the tray away. And to be honest, they are quite a lot of effort when you do them at home, which I'm sure you do as often as I do. Do you do your own canapes? Yeah, I do. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Yeah. Could not be asked. Yeah, I, I figured you were going to say that. I yeah. can cook, but I cook things of substance <laughs> and volume. I specialise in volume. Well, I, both me and my husband cook as well, and I think... If I had to say my special, well, I don't even know if it's the thing that I'm best at because I'm actually really good at baking as well. She says modestly. Um, but uh, I love doing a buffet with like mm. canapes and then lots of dips. And mm. yeah, we're just talking about food again now, aren't we? Yeah. See, this was my point. No further questions, Your Honour. Also, I, as you were explaining that, I was genuinely interested because I like you as a person. But I was thinking, do you think everyone just pressed stop there? Yeah, I should think so. Yeah. Should we press stop? Yeah, yeah, let's do yeah. that. Save it till next time. More food and books. Yeah.